the podcast that helps you write good. I'm R.S. Benedict. In previous episodes, I have said over and over again that one of the best ways to improve your writing is to read a lot. And I must stress that you have to read books and stories. Movies and video games can be well-crafted works of storytelling, but a good movie won't help you write as well as a good book, because written fiction is a different medium with different strengths. Mainly, movies and video games are audiovisual media, while fiction has the unique ability to explore the internal and the invisible. With me today to talk about this is Carlo Jaeger Rodriguez, sci-fi fantasy author and co-host of Podside Picnic. Carlo, thanks for coming back. Thanks for having me back. All right. (laughs) For the first time ever to talk about this topic. Yes, there is not a lost reel. At all. (laughs) Oh, fuck. (laughs) But anyway, let's get into it. There's something I've noticed a lot when when I'm reading writing that kind of leaves me cold. Maybe this is unpublished writing that's put up for critique, or maybe this is published writing that's just not blowing me away. But something I find a lot of the writing that leaves me cold, the writing that doesn't interest me, that that doesn't do it for me, is that what happens is that these stories are being written like movies, particularly they're being written like a blockbuster movie. And I see that over and over again in, in stories that just, for me, aren't up to snuff. It's feels like it's written like a movie, especially a big budget kind of popcorn movie. Right. And that style of writing can work pretty good in a movie because you've got the visual effects to back it up but on the page all you have are words and it's not coming through in the words right i feel like uh, when i was first starting out and just really sort of dedicating myself a bit more to writing you know like about 10 years ago or whatever i tended and this is just to explain these are two different things but they can get smashed together because of the tendency for advice uh writing advice to be like oh write cinematically so then you Mm. you smash that together with show don't tell and then you have like these very sterile with just scenes that are just audiovisual they don't really integrate like the way uh you would think in a given situation you know if it were happening to you and in a book you would get a bit of interiority and here i was you know just coming out the gate not even really started hadn't really even started uh submitting anything yet and here i'm thinking to myself i'm copying hemingway see this is what hemingway does (laughs) but you know hemingway had what uh, at least a couple of decades of journalism under his belt to be able to get away with some of the way the ways that he wrote 
he kind of encodes the interiority into these descriptions anyway. Like, it's there. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's yeah. just not explicitly inside, he thought. Like, it's ab- it's there in the prose and in the descriptions of the environment. Right, right. And <laughs> was good I, at writing. I, f- <laughs> I mean, I feel like there is a small caveat to uh, read a lot. Because right. you can read, like, I like you see what... To, to go to Hemingway again, just briefly, like you said, he does have it there, but to an untrained or a self-taught eye, as many writers tend to be, you may not immediately be able to sort of peel away the layers. And all you see is a perfect, you know, a perfect series of sentences that make a story. And the caveat to read a lot is you can also uh, read bad books to see how it's... How right. To, like honestly you actually learn a lot because you it's sort of i use the the metaphor of of like if you've ever stitched together had a a sewn piece of clothing right you can you can sometimes tell that it's a first or 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 a second attempt because you can see all the stitching whereas Mm -hmm. a more polished seamstress or tailor or whomever would then hide the stitching as needs be right you read something from a very good established author, you know, uh, Henry James or a Jane Austen or, you know, uh, you are going to get that piece of clothing or that wove in the story where you don't mm-hmm. actually see the stitching unless they want you to see it. Right. But sort of the reason I stress reading is just because I feel like a heck of a whole lot of aspiring writers, aspiring genre writers especially, really don't read all that much. I mean, I, I've seen a lot of people who say, I want to be a writer, and you ask, well, who's your favorite Who's your favorite writer? And they're like, oh, I don't really like to read very much. Like, the what? <laughs> no, get out, go home, or maybe study screenwriting. You like right. movies, study screenwriting. Write, write that way, because there's a particular type of writing that works very well for the screen and doesn't work in a book very well <laughs> mainly because yeah. film is an audiovisual medium its strengths is visuals and audio books are not so yeah. if a good movie plays to its strengths or maybe even over relies on on this big visual spectacle a book can't rely on visual spectacle because there's no visuals hi cat well, I mean- so <laughs> so say if all you're watching is like I don't know, MCU movies, the climax always relies on this big CGI orb or something, or CGI portals and and CGI people smashing into each other with explosions superimposed on the background. If you're writing this stuff, you don't have a team of visual effects people to make the spectacle there. All you have are words and writing down. And then a white beam rose phallically into the sky is just not kind of not not gonna do it <laughs> well i mean you know you could try i do remember uh going back to reading not so great books r.a salvatore all his like uh, D books oh my god i i just would my eyes would glass over uh, glaze over after a while because you know he'd write these super elaborate uh like fight scenes where, you know, he's trying to, like you said, he's trying to sort of give you a movie and right. it's pages of it. And it's like, oh, my God, really, dude? Come on, man. 
<laughs> right. But when you learn to write fight scenes from movies, what you end up doing is it feels like you're describing a fight scene that you yeah. watched and not something that you lived. And it's not that interesting. It, it, it doesn't get you in there, inside the person who's doing the fighting. So it doesn't feel real. It doesn't feel like there are any stakes. It's just kind of dull to me. Like, let me tell you yeah. about this movie I watched. Like, okay, cool. Thanks. Sounds, sounds great. Well, I, I, I would also say that a lot of the time, I feel like even those fights, uh, sort of sequences in in fiction of that type, uh, also do the same thing, which is weirdly, there's no pain, there's no blood, there's no sort right. of, there's nothing that is not audiovisual. And part of that is obviously, you know, when people say that, utterly tedious and ridiculous write what you know no you don't you don't want to like get into a hundred fights to find out what <laughs> what that feels right. like but obviously you need to convey that in a way that feels real like more real than just watching you know two guys uh, in in suits head punch each other you know it's not that's not interesting so when you're writing that like that you're trying to rely on audiovisual spectacle and you're in you're just gonna fail because you don't have that to rely on you're trying to lean on a strength that the medium doesn't have and while you're doing that you're neglecting the strength that the medium does have because it's a great strength perhaps the greatest strength that written fiction has is this interiority is that it can deal with the invisible with the silent and with the internal in a way that film can't, in a way that video games generally can't. You're ignoring the one great strength that books and written fiction, that stories have. And that's a real shame. It's, it's an absolute waste to have this great thing and not use it. This is something that I struggle with even today. I feel like there is a tendency to shy away from emotionality uh, from mm. interiority uh, in a lot of works because you know that appeals broadly just the way that you know these blockbuster movies appeal broadly and it's it, you need emotion in in your writing you need something extra because to paraphrase um, <laughs> Aqua Teen Hunger Force you know <laughs> uh, movies do, movies deliver it twice as fast so Honestly, it's easier to sit down and watch some, even some dumb movie uh, than to read because there is a certain level of buy-in and what that right. gives you. Like the reading like You can play on your phone with a movie. You can't really do that with a book. You've got to just right. look at the book. You can't, you can't goof off on your phone. Right, right. I mean, you can. Uh, you are not going to enjoy reading <laughs> right. because you, you can't have that divided sort of like that weird divided attention like you're you're like you're hinting at there is a level of the reader needs to be invited in and meet the prose halfway at the very least and the other half is the writer needs to engage with emotions and like you said the strengths that a that a that a book has uh, hit on those heartstrings. Why is this fight important? Because that's the other thing. It's it's you know like right. if there's no emotionality behind it, well then why are they fighting? What's what's the point? Right, right. And a movie can kind of start with a fight scene because you can visually encode 
sort of here's the good guy, here's the bad guy, here's the underdog. You can sort of use composition and costume design and color to encode that so that even without explicitly saying what's happening, the audience is going to immediately pick up like, oh, these are these are the rebels and this is the empire. These are the good guys and that's the bad guy. You know, that guy's bad because his costume's real scary. In a book, you don't really have that so much mm-hmm. and you need to give them that. You don't have that ability to encode information visually and you need to give it some other way but if you're so used to thinking in movie terms you're going to miss out on giving that to us right right and and also like it's it's sort of weird because i I was thinking about this morning that even in more modern writing it's considered passe to sort of go into these long maybe paragraph long descriptions of of the character Usually the main character and maybe some important ones, but you know it's sort of weird how that's become passe, and we just decided to sort of go towards, yeah, this character, some basic sketching out of the character to distinguish them, but most of what happens is a lot of action, you know, like what they do, their actions are what sort of sets them set them apart, and I don't know if that's a good thing or a bad thing. It's just a weird observation I've had recently. It's, I think it's, again, taking the show-don't-tell thing too far, where it's like, oh, only show, never tell, and, and using the word show or the word tell in a very, very narrow, very specific way. Yeah. Kind of over-applying it. it. It's a bit of advice that's good for beginning writers, because beginning writers tell everything and show nothing a lot of the time. But people take it way too fucking far and never tell and end up showing in these very superficial or disinteresting ways and sometimes i think it is okay or more efficient or more effective to just fucking tell me just fucking tell me yeah (laughs) i mean um and 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 i I always think of that was it a i think it's a picasso quote where he says i had to learn 20 years of painting to uh learn how to paint like a toddler or something i'm I'm murdering that quote but you know it's sort of interesting to see how you can you can get away with telling if you're very like if you know what you're doing it's a great tool like i i was revisiting um those who walk away from omelas by ursula k Le Guin, and there is so much i think most of that story if not all of it is all telling pretty much it is complete exposition and it's great it's a, it's a fantastic story i mean it's it is really gut-wrenching yeah what if you tried to write it cinematic be like the boy awoke in his cell Right. He well, sighed. I mean, I, His stomach would, growled. Right. Yeah. Because what she wants to do is she wants to show you the 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 layers. So she does start. It's weird because it does sort of start cinematically with the with the parade and so on and so forth and how the horses are champing proudly at their bits as they blah, blah, blah. And slowly it, it sort of peels away the layers of this great city called Omelas until you get to the rotten core of it. And that's where she she just gives you a, a fucking gut punch because that is a horrible horrible condition for the utopia that everything else is. Right. And it's right, it's right. I would say it's all told. I mean it it works fantastically. Oh, yeah. But again, and it's elegant prose too. So that yeah. that's a big part of why it works. Like you can get right. away with telling if you tell in a way that's really beautiful. That's right. about it. Yeah. I mean that's <laughs> and it's Le Guin. You know, come on now. Yeah, she's great. <laughs> She knows what she's fucking doing. You, you're going to yeah. tell Ursula Le Guin, no, you're doing it wrong. Make it more cinematic. She will punch you in the balls. 
She'll come back from the dead just to do that. How dare you? (laughs) All right. So there are a lot of symptoms to this style of writing, to this attempt to write cinematically in this very superficial way. One, I think, is delivering exposition solely through dialogue. Mm. (laughs) Like, that is a thing you kind of have to do in movies, unless you do the, the opening crawl which a lot of people don't really do anymore. It's considered sort of out of vogue for the most part, but delivering exposition solely through two characters talking to each other, especially when it's two characters explaining something that they already know to each other. You don't have to do that in a fucking book, but I see it all the time. (laughs) Well, as you know, Bob, uh, (laughs) the reader may not know these things, but we need to explain it in a way, even though we would both know exactly what the Dinglehopper is. I guess it's an attempt to show, not tell, but it is just, it's it's still telling. It's just having a character tell instead of the narrator. Like, you haven't fixed the problem at all. You just gave it to somebody else. Right. And I mean, and again, (laughs) this goes back to, this goes back to what tools you're using. And obviously this is a bit of a ham-handed one, I find. Uh, I, I sort of roll my eyes at it unless it's like really well done in a way that would just something else is distracting me and it just rolls over me but generally speaking it's a super cliche to have like the the exposition via dialogue and i also see that in movies it's or or in tv shows as well it's like oh yeah god why why are you guys talking about this didn't you just see that didn't you just do that right for those of you who got up to pee during the last scene Let's have another character give it a recap, because you were in the bathroom, and you didn't hit pause for some reason. You were getting a snack. You were on your phone, so we're going to explain it again. Yeah, I mean, I, I've, I feel like that's just simply a limitation of the medium and, and the right, understanding. Right. I mean, sometimes you can't really avoid it. Sometimes yeah. you just got to be like, oh, okay, let's just shove it in there. Let's just, I mean, let's just put it in there. Yeah, I mean, there's the, <laughs> the Kim Stanley Robinson approach that's like, fuck it. It's going to be exposition anyway. I try it. So right. here's the exposition, guys. Here <laughs> Choke it, is. it down to, before you get to the next part. But I mean, you know, some of it can be more uh, like that type of exposition. I think I I mentioned it sometime before that, like, I, you know, I remember I had to, like, I felt like I needed to read the entire citation, different whales chapter in Moby Dick. Mm. And when I realized, you know what, buddy, uh, you can just flip past it. The next chapter has nothing to do with this one. Moby Dick is great for that. A lot of the chapters yeah. are just sort of like, like almost vignettes that build on the atmosphere. And again, this is exposition that builds on the atmosphere, but you don't need to know about the 800 whales that everyone knows that are actually fish or whatever. Uh, you right. can just continue and, and finish the the amazingly great adventure that uh, that ends them uh, like ends with Ishmael on a coffin, you know, floating out in the South Sea. Let's see. Another symptom of this I notice is something I I've started calling bad blocking, mm. and it's writing character actions, especially in conversation, like bad actors or badly directed actors. Now, to those of you who are unfamiliar with acting or theater terms. What blocking means is blocking is sort of how you plan characters or actors' movements. Because the script doesn't have a lot of stage direction. It's not really supposed to have that much direction. That's for the actor's and the director to figure out. Scripts tend to 
just be very dialogue heavy. But you obviously can't have two characters standing motionless, talking. It looks really weird. So you've got to like plan, okay, when you say this line, you go center stage. And when you say that line, you walk across the stage and gaze out the window. And then you pick up the wine glass. That Figuring all that stuff out, that's called blocking. And it's really hard to do it well. If you're an inexperienced actor and an inexperienced director, you end up doing these big sweeping gestures that look super hammy and are really cliched. And I find that's what a lot of writers do when they try to do this. Like, uh, how many times have we read kind of a pulpy novel where someone drums their finger upon the table impatiently, or she bit her lip, or he swirled the wine in his goblet as he spoke, or her lip quivered, or he paced madly about the room, or she smoothed her skirt nervously, or he thrust his fists into the air and shouted, you are tearing me apart, Lisa. These are like these big hammy gestures that are basically bad acting, bad direction, and bad blocking, because most writers aren't great actors and aren't great directors, and we're trying to do something that we see in movies, but we're not good at it. And it ends up (laughs) looking really, really goofy. And another part of this is sort of bad acting where we take the show don't tell thing too far and we end up showing a character's emotional state with really cliched physical actions. Like he balled his fists as his face turned crimson with rage or her eyes welled up with tears or her lip quivered. She bit her lip. She bit her quivering lip. Her lip quivered. So she bit it. Girl, girls in books are always biting their lips and their lips are always quivering. I don't know. I don't bite my lips as much as girls do in books. It's very odd. (laughs) But every time I see one of those, I roll my eyes because it's so corny. And I picture an actor doing it. And it's a bad actor. It's fucking Tommy Wiseau shit. It's terrible. (laughs) I'm just imagining like, because a lot of this is also to, um, to avoid like the said bookisms, I feel Mm -hmm. like is a, it's like a real sort of, uh, it's something that you don't need to do. He said, she said, you know, that type of thing. He growled as he, th- he growled with his fist on the desk. Yeah, it's she like, hissed. I mean, you, 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 you only need one or, <laughs> one or the other of those. You really don't need to have him pounding on the desk. But, you know, it, it's, I think it's, it's to your point, I think it's trying to not leave space for the reader to interpret or sort of insert what they would want to imagine there and and in a sense i think there is this weird control that the that the writer is trying to exert rather than let the reader just let the story engage them they want to force the reader to see things in the way that the movie in their head says it should be right and you're not making a movie and it's almost better to think of it as like, look, your reader is your director, and you got to give them space. Yeah, it, it's it's amazing to read like a script or a play and see how little. It's so bare bones. Yeah, there's like interior, this, you know, maybe three or four different uh, settings or whatever, and interior, exterior. That's about it. Yeah. Unless there's some specific. Here's where the walls go. Yeah, there unless there's some specific thing that they want to, like, he, you know, smiling, you know, whatever. But even then, I feel like that would probably be crossed out. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> even then, a director like, is going to be like, fuck you. This is my job. You sit down, screenwriter. <laughs> I'm going to make that motherfucker frown. 
now that you told me to Fuck do you he's smiling uh, <laughs> but yeah I, I i just think it's 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 a way to avoid like there's several things and they're, they're not all the same thing but yeah i think it's a, a way to avoid like the dialogue tags because somehow that looks weird and truth be told no one no one pays attention to dialogue tags nope like the he said she said they said whatever whomever said it just fades into the background because you you just want that signifier as a reader i just need a, a brief a light touch to remind me oh this is what this person said and if it's a long dialogue thing you know you do need to have something there to just let me know who who's doing the talking back and forth that's about it Right. I'm very much of the school of thought that dialogue tags should be as close to invisible as possible. Whenever a dialogue tag brings attention to itself, I kind of roll my eyes. I totally, whenever a character growls, I just think it's silly. <laughs> I just picture someone literally going, grrr. <laughs> I mean, unless you're writing a werewolf, I think it's, <laughs> then it's fine. You know, he's in mid, he's in mid, mid werewolfing and he's like, grrr. Yeah, it's like okay, that's fine. It fits. It's just Anywhere. goose or sighing. She sighed, and not really. I mean, imagine saying a whole line of dialogue. I mean, the thing it's here so is that <laughs> it's so melodramatic. Well, I'm also thinking like <laughs> I'm just imagining like the the thing here is that if you're exerting that much control as a writer <laughs> on what the movie the reader wants to see in their head be prepared for some very jerky weird movements like if she yeah. sighs all the time i'm just imagining like some very melodramatic teenager right. that's just like do i have to <sighs> yeah. some victorian fainting damsel diagnosed with feminine hysteria so that she can get lots of opium <laughs> some on her fainting couch yeah, uh, I have or, the or, vapors. Bring the smelling salts. He drummed his fists as he growled and pounded the desk with his other fist. And then you're like, wait, wait, what's how much how much action is going on in this? <laughs> like he's just her sitting at a desk. Quivered. She bit her lip. Her lip just kept quivering. She had some kind of fucked up muscle spasm in her lip. She should probably get it checked out. There could be something neurologically going on. I don't know what's going on. I mean, on. unless Maybe it's a Cronenberg film. I don't know. Unless it's a Cronenberg <laughs> film and she bit her lip off and it's still quivering, trying to say yeah, something. It crawled so. across the floor and had like little go. lip babies. <laughs> Just sprout some eyes, you know, whatever. It doesn't matter. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, the, the thing here is that understand, like if you're approaching this from a writing standpoint, you need to understand that you need, I feel like you need to understand that the reader need there needs to be space for that reader and, um, and, and for that reader to sort of meet the text halfway that means that you probably don't need so much direction from the page. Just let them sort of figure it out. You can give yep. context clues and all sorts of other stuff rather than <laughs> that weird physical like physical dialogue tags. I don't know about you, but sometimes I will to denote some sort of emotion or something like that. You do have to establish it, but you can have the, the character looking at something else. It seems important, right. you know, that type right. of thing. But you don't necessarily have to have, like, an action paired to dialogue. No, no. And when it comes to showing emotion, I, I find it much better to try and make the reader feel that emotion rather than just telling the reader, and then she was sad, or then she started crying. Like, <laughs> yeah. um, if you tell me that someone cries, it's never going to make me cry. 
But if you kind of lead me through the thought process or the emotional journey that's making this character cry, then I'm totally with you. Right. right. You got me. You're going to make it happen. I also wonder how much of this, I don't know how, how recent a lot of this is. I got here late, you know, but (laughs) I I do have to wonder, like, to be honest with you, like, is there a feedback from what types of movies people watch nowadays? Right. That aren't very, they're very sort of surface level, very sort of flat. They're almost like, I mean, the MCU are just basically TV shows that are just two hour TV shows that are strung along. You know, and, and given that the fact that there's not a lot of sort of underneath the surface metaphor or, you know, like very complicated stuff going on. No. How does that then bounce back and affect someone who is trying to write like the movies that they watch? Right. Then there's another feedback loop in here in terms of, I mean... There's there's not a ton of money to be made selling books for the most part. Very few authors get rich just by selling books, and a lot of the good money is made in selling the movie rights or the made-for-streaming TV series rights to your book. Yeah. So I feel like a lot of people are kind of writing stuff that will be more easily adapted for the screen, so there's not a lot of that internal stuff. It's all very surface, because that's going to be very easy to adapt with very few changes. So that kind of feeds into that feedback loop, too. So the the kind of shallow surface-level stuff gets adapted easier, and that's what you see, and those are the books you hear about, so those are the books you read, and you write like that. And obviously you want to make money, so there's a financial incentive to write in this really superficial, bland way, too. And that's a real fucking bummer. Yeah, it is. I mean, I I think that it also affects like that. And I don't think this is movies necessarily. It's just simply Mm -hmm. uh, sort of capitalism (laughs) writ large is the fact that a lot of a lot of stuff that comes out is it, it, it might have certain heavy themes but it doesn't feel adult no it's like you're dealing with war in the way you'd explain it to a 10 year old yeah yeah exactly like i i think a lot of it also boils down to uh what kurt on your on your previous um media criticism episode said that there's a lot of stuff out there that i feel that doesn't end with a question mark but with a period right and I mean, it's not exactly the same thing. It's not a one for one, but a lot of it, it seems to be very much broad appeal. Uh, I feel like a lot of uh, sort of complex or maybe darker emotions don't get no, no, a lot of time, mainly because it, that would bring, bring people down and it affects the user experience. Now, if right. ever, if ever I wanted to say a cursed, uh, have a cursed a phrase come out of my mouth like that <laughs> it was i was not expecting it to happen today i am not thinking of readers as a user experience <laughs> right so there's a lot of reasons why this is kind of happening part of it is just the ubiquity of film and kind of shallow film and and maybe even video games as a medium too i'm not knocking video games but a book shouldn't be written in the same way a, a video game is written it, right. it's just shouldn't and a lot of it is just, here's what the market tends to promote. Here's what the market likes. Because very often, good books don't make very good movies. Mm. And when a good novel 
is adapted effectively, there are massive, massive changes so much of the time. Like The Shining, is the adaptation is so different from the book. <laughs> Children of Men, Blade Runner is a wildly different movie than, than what the book was. It's mm-hmm. barely related to the book just because there's a lot of stuff in the book that couldn't work visually. Like Mercerism, how the fuck would you... I don't know how you would do Mercerism in a movie. Or The Princess Bride... Or, or American Psycho, they made a lot of really big changes in order to make these work as movies. Yeah. Did, did you ever hear the, um, I don't know if this is true or not, but I, I heard it told uh, that one of the, I think probably one of the things that peeved Stephen King about um, Kubrick Kubrick's adaptation of The Shining was that he only received, only ever received one phone call from Kubrick and... Uh, <laughs> Uh, about the adaptation and i think that one of the lines stuck with king was that uh kubrick said well you know thinking that there are ghosts and actual hauntings seems rather optimistic wouldn't you think and i (laughs) i just find that so hilarious because it's like oh shit Well, and uh, Blade Runner only even they I don't think they even really touch upon how fucking devastated the world is from like basically nuclear war. They only ever hint at the um, uh, synthetic animals. Right. In that first scene. And that's it. Whereas in the in uh, the book, right, the guy owns a fake sheep or something. Everyone owns yeah. a fake pet. They they hint at it, and there's all is that snake real or is that owl real? And because there's a replicant owl, but they don't really talk about it that much. Yeah. And uh, oh, did I? And also, uh, you just remembered reminded me of like my movie experience with American Psycho. <laughs> I remember the first time I saw it, I walked out of the theater pissed because <laughs> because it's it, it is in fact a, an ending that leaves a question mark at the end of it and i wasn't oh really they pull the rug out from a, under you you're like what the fuck well i mean i was like fuck this it it didn't happen what are you talking about like well, this is just ridiculous and then i realized like i rewatched it like maybe a, a year or two later and realized like oh oh this no no this is genius because it didn't really matter He's white and he's super rich. He could have he could have just killed twenty people and it didn't really. No one was ever going to come after him, right? You know, or he's just so so bonkers, insane that it also more disturbing, perhaps. Right, or or this is symbolic in a way. I mean, of what he's doing to the world, the 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 way that he's running the world is doing some very very real violence. It's just he's. A couple of steps removed from it so he doesn't really see the blood personally right right exactly yeah so let's talk a little bit about what we mean by the invisible or the internal we've talked a lot about how books can give you the invisible but what does that mean <laughs> what's that how, what do we mean by giving people I mean, the invisible I'll, and the internal i i would i would probably say that if i were if if i were to make a definition of it is the fact that you want to replicate the human everyday human condition of walking through your life in the real world in your memories and in vague little dreams and snippets of imagination that happen every day like every second of every day you are engaging on at least two or three different levels of like reality there's you know your internal reality your own thoughts your your hopes and dreams your fears 
uh, why exactly you feel something like, you know, you feel despondent or whatever. Oh, wait, this is the day, you know, five years ago that something happened. And I feel like you don't get that in movies Right. Or at least it's difficult to to portray without having like a weird stutter of like flashback and flash forward scenes as you're like following a character through their just everyday life, uh, mm. which would just be off putting. <laughs> you just what's what's going on? But you can get away with that in a in a story. You can have right. little asides like that. Right, right. I guess it's the difference between having your memory versus watching an old like home movie. It's not the same experience. It's a radically different experience, and it feels different. Right, right. Or, you know, uh, interesting interesting exercise. Have someone remember something vastly different than how it is portrayed on an actual home movie. <laughs> yeah, right. that's how you introduce an unreliable narrator. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I guess it might be better to just give examples of what we're talking about. I. One really good example might be Kafka's The Metamorphosis. So much of that story is under the surface. It's it's what's going on in Gregor's head after he wakes up and he finds out he's a big bug. It's not, oh. he did this and then he did that, but he's thinking like, oh shit, I gotta get to work. I'll, I'm on my back. I don't know how to flip over. Let me, my legs are real spindly. Let me see if I can just, and we spend so much time in poor Gregor's head as he's working out just how to flip over onto his stomach so he can walk around. Mm-hmm. And it's so, so, so internal. Right. Well, I mean, a lot of it is also the fact that it hints at how he's already been sort of cast as sort of like an alien creature by his own family. Uh, But they also depend on him. So, you know, like the metaphor and his internal thoughts sort of combine to let you know, oh, oh, he has, has, has sort of internalized the fact that he is a bug to his family but they also depend on him. And it's just su- such a weird, awesome, like, turn to realize that. It's, it's, it's a horribly depressing story, but it's a, it's a good one to read uh, to get that sense of interiority because he is sort of trapped in a new body that does not mm-hmm. do what it used to. <laughs> right, right. Like, he can't even turn over. He's yeah, just, I'm just these little, like, sp- spindly little bug feet. I'm just, he doesn't know what bug feet. It's terrible. Like a like a a, a more uh, contemporary movie of that would be like, uh, uh, you're probably oh no, I'm a bug. I'm I'm sure you're wondering how I got here. <laughs> you know, <laughs> record scratch. <laughs> just like a very cheerful like quantum leap. Uh, <laughs> it's a Pixar leap movie. Uh, <laughs> oh boy. He finds out he's a bug. Uh oh. Get some pop songs in there. He learns a valuable lesson about friendship and accepting yourself. Well, you know, if you're if you're gonna <laughs> be a bug, be all about the bug. Another be- really good example is *The Turn of the Screw* by Henry James. Uh, so much of that novella is just in the governess's head to the point where we really don't know what's real and what is not. And a lot of film adaptations of that story fall flat because when you're representing it visually, you're deciding sort of what's real and what's not. Like, okay, we're seeing this on screen, so obviously the apparition's real. Right. It kind of does that to us, and that's why there are so many, there aren't very many good adaptations to it, or adaptations of it end up having to change it massively to be anything good. Like The Others. The Others is very clearly inspired by it, but it kind of takes a very different route, and it's 
just got the same atmosphere and it's great. Yeah. I mean, uh, I was just thinking like looking at you of the haunting of Bly Manor, <laughs> which if you've never read Turn of the Screw is fine. It's not horrible, but it's not, it's not, it's just very, I felt a little ham handed in parts. It's ham handed. And in parts, it's weirdly wants to like, Oh, this is a ghost story, but the ghosts are all trauma. And it's like, no, can we just have ghosts? Let's just have ghosts. I mean, it already did do that in the book, but in a really, in a much more subtle way. Mm-hmm. And in a way that feel, and in a way to me, having that kind of subtlety where it's not this very clearly straightforward, this clearly represents that, and that clearly represents that. To me, that gets at what trauma does to a person in a way that's so much more truthful. Yeah. Like, it's not that basic one-to-one, almost sort of logical, ah, she was bitten by a dog, so dogs upset her. A lot of the times it'll be like, she was bitten by a dog, so she doesn't trust men. Like, what? Like, <laughs> it, it kind of ends in this weird indirect way. Yeah. In, and, and that's kind of how the novella does it, and versus this these adaptations that are too tidy, they're too clean and easy. Yeah, I feel like the other adaptation, the book that got adapted to that Haunting of series, uh, Hill ha- the Haunting of Hill House, like the book is very, like, you know exactly what's happening in uh, Eleanor's head, like all the time. Oh, yeah. Like she is, like she intrudes upon the narrative, which is great because it's all about her, you know, like, and what she recognizes in Hill House and what Hill House recognizes in her. And if you didn't have that interiority, it'd be like just a weird disjointed story about some right. some weird like recluse woman who just never fit in. And you're like, there's reasons for that. <laughs> yeah. What about her story? Yeah. And and the adaptation couldn't give us that, so it just gave us like, oh family. Well, and also the shitty the fan weird, fiction, the weird time traveling uh, ghost thing, which can I mean, it can work. But generally speaking, you have to you have to sort of do something to pull it off, I feel. Yeah. Ugh. Ugh. But anyway, um, cosmic horror, I think, is another great example as a genre of writing the invisible. So much of cosmic horror is about how if you look at this thing, it will drive you insane. Which, again, well, is why it's so poorly handled in movies, because movies are visual. And I, I don't think there's a special effects crew that can literally drive us insane <laughs> with just, look how scary this monster is. So whenever you, I mean, whenever you try to visually represent Cthulhu, you just go, oh, it's just a big squid, okay. Like, he, that's not scary. Yeah. I don't feel crazy, it's just a squid man, whatever. Well, I mean, it, I think it's been flattened from what Lovecraft himself was trying to convey, which is he... he never was concrete so it's sort of like a squid head and sort of like a dragon's wings and sort of maybe like this and it's like which is supposed to be like all incongruous parts which is why it doesn't sort of fit together and why it sort of doesn't follow the normal rules of our reality as we understand it but yeah uh, to your point i feel like movies have to work really hard for you for for them to get to that just vibing part of like the aesthetic and the atmosphere that a good horror, you know, a good horror book or story is able to achieve rather well 
and easily. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And when you don't take advantage of the invisible, what you end up is you you miss out on this. You miss out on what could be your greatest strength, and it's a, a, an absolute waste. If you're not going to engage with the invisible in your story, then maybe don't write a story. Maybe write a script or an audio drama or make a video game or something, but don't don't waste your time and the reader's time making a story that is not at its heart a story that wants to be a movie. Don't do it. Yeah. <laughs> All right. So another another way that the written word differs from movies, from visual media, is the way it handles time. Films are generally linear, maybe with a couple of flashbacks thrown in. I know Memento goes backwards, but that's kind of the one different thing, and it's a bit of a gimmick. But movies are a lot more linear than books are, and films run at their own predetermined speed. You hit play and they go, and that's how they're meant to be watched. But yeah. a book goes at the pace of the reader and not the director's. And you, since it's all on the page, you can flip back and forth and like no one's going to stop you. There's no book cop that's going to stop you from doing that. <laughs> so just fundamentally, your audience is going to engage with it in a, in a different way, temporally. And you might want to try and take advantage of that. Right. I mean, uh, there is... I mean, for you to be immersed in reading generally means that something won't necessarily make you sort of put the book down uh, or the story down or whatever until you're done. But uh, in general, yeah, you can completely have stuff that's you know seeded in 15 chapters back and suddenly come to come to the fore now, and you it, it'll still be there for the for the reader to flip back and goes, oh, wait a minute, they, they, they said this. But of course, you could also just include a remembrance of that, uh, that little seeded uh, establishment right before you then reveal whatever it is, right? Uh, whatever the plot, right. the plot turn is. But also, you know, going back to the sort of immersed in memory and, and, and in internal thoughts idea, you can also have you know stuff in the past come up come up in the present right he, he, he felt he felt let down and suddenly remembered how he was always picked last for baseball teams you know that type of thing and that's just a simple simple line you can just put in there but you're in you're inferring like a deeper sort of hurt that that character has and then when she was introduced to her boss, she realized it was the girl who was a bitch to her in high school. Like, oh, oh no! Now we got that time. Now it's all now it's all together. And I, I guess you could ha- you would handle that with a flashback in a movie, but you kind of don't have to do that in a book. Just that one line, and it's there. It is in in written yeah. fiction. You can weave together a lot of different times, a lot of these different threads of time in one section of the book. What's happening now? What recently happened? The characters shared history, history of the space where the action is, maybe some hint at the future. And I feel like film really only handles one time at once. We're in this scene. This is what's happening now. Now it's a flashback. Here's what happened before. But that's it. You're sort of, it can only really handle one time period at a time. And books can kind of weave them together and try and take advantage of that. Yeah. It's really, really rich. You have all these things you can work with. And 
it's a shame not to use these things that are available to you. Yeah, I mean, like, just think of, I just pulled it up because it's it's such a great line, the um, the English translation to 100 Years of Solitude, where it, mm. it does that immediately. It lets you know. It says, many years later, as he faced the firing squad, Coronel Aureliano Buendia was to remember that distant afternoon when his father took him to discover ice. What time mm. period is this story going to start in? <laughs> because you start off with a memory with a future, a flash forward, and him having a memory in that flash forward. Could you do that in a movie? Yeah. Oh, gosh. It, it would be so hard good. and it wouldn't hit right. It wouldn't hit the same way. Yeah. 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 I mean, uh, the, the cheesy way would be to have him, you know, like... A voiceover. Uh... Or, or, or pan in on his eye and it's like the gleam of his eye and then suddenly the scene of him discovering ice, you know. I don't think it's it's very hammy, but it would work. I don't think it would be a good thing. It It wouldn't as well. Yeah, yeah. I think it's just one of those things that you need to read it uh, because you can sort of see how past, present, and future just sort of folded together just in a perfect little sentence. Yeah, yeah. And another aspect of time, too, is that books are longer, usually. So you have more room to sprawl out and be complex and big. Like, it takes around maybe eight hours to read a novel. So you get more room to play, more more stuff, more depth. Um, and that's a reason why so many adaptations of great novels kind of feel like a book report. <laughs> like a section of a novel that might have taken up an hour ends up taking three minutes in the movie, and it just doesn't have that weight. And it's also a part of why movies based on short stories tend to be a lot better. Like The Maltese Falcon was a short story. Brokeback Mountain was a short story. Arrival. Arrival. Yeah, Arrival was a short story. And it gives you a basic template and then leaves the director enough room to sort of put their own ideas in there. Whereas a book, you have so much in there. And if you're going to adapt it to something that's two or even three hours, you just got to cut. You just have to diminish it instead of making something greater. Right. I mean, and and that's that is. I mean, to be fair, that is a fantastic talent if you can pull it off and pull it off well. Knowing where where you need certain things that are from a book in an yeah. adaptation of it is very important. But uh, you know, the the thing here is that they have to be two separate things. Yeah. And I, I feel like, to your point, the, the short stories, and I feel like there's a movement towards lots of movies recently, at least maybe I'm, I'm just noticing them more often, are based on short stories. And I feel that they're Good. stronger for it, <laughs> yeah. mainly because the short story is the playground uh, a lot of the times for readers because there's not a huge uh, financial constraint, like the idea that you could make a lot of money uh, is not part right. of the short fiction part of things. No, F- folks, you, you can't. The the days of living off of your short fiction are long past if they ever no, existed. Not but happening. but because you don't have that pressure, I feel like an author can be more experimental, can do more things, can leave things ambiguous or open ended, which then fits a sort of a, a filmmaking milieu much better than say a novel. Right. Where the novel has to sort of have its own weaving together of all the different themes and then come to a climax and then end. Or right. whatever your structure may be. Oh yeah, another another aspect of a novel I should have mentioned too is, remember a movie is supposed, you're supposed to sit down on, for two hours and watch it and then stop. 
ideally that's how you do it. A book, you are meant to put that down every mm-hmm. every so often, unless you expect your readers to be crazy and sit there for eight fucking hours. You expect them to put it down. Yeah. So you're you're letting them engage with it in a different way, and maybe you want to write it as a series of vignettes like Moby Dick is. Or maybe you, knowing that readers will skim parts of it, maybe you want to put in sections that they're going to skim. Like House of Leaves, there are these these whole sections where I, I kind of think it's just nonsense and you're meant to sort of skim over it. Hmm. Or in the original American Psycho, after every murder, Patrick Bateman gives a really long, extended, detailed product review. Like, like there's that scene where he's talking about the new Huey Lewis and the news album while he's killing a person. In the book, what it does is he kills a person and then would talk about Huey Lewis and the news on and on and on. And it really goes on because it's meant to be relentless. It's meant to be mind-numbing. And I'm imagining that the readers are meant to kind of skim it just to get the point of like, oh my God, shut up, dude. Right. So you can kind of deliberately frustrate and bore people because they can skim it in a movie you kind of can't because people will just like leave or stop and, and well, I mean, go watch something else. I, I also fi- thought that it was the, the point is, was also to sort of uh, hammer home the, the, the idea that uh, Patrick Bateman uh, as a persona is a bit of a product himself. Right. Uh, so, so you know, now I'm 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 just thinking of him leaving Yelp reviews for different uh, shitty restaurants that he thought were better. Oh God! <laughs> Could you imagine? But anyway, uh, yeah, be, I think I think it's just it's just one of these things that it's it's put in there to just also if if you weren't sure, uh, given all his gross killing and uh and cannibalism and shit like that if you weren't put off by that this should let you know that he's utterly repugnant and (laughs) completely empty like he is as you know he's just there's nothing there as he said yeah yeah so let's skip from time over to structure another uh thing that books have i think that movies don't is you get a little bit more freedom to experiment with structure it's not that films can't be experimental, it's just that movies are so much more expensive, so studios really don't want to take big risks. You don't want to put millions and millions and millions of dollars into something that's deliberately confusing, because mm-hmm. you're going to lose the audience a lot. So books can kind of play with structure in a way that films can't. I'm thinking of House of Leaves. Mm-hmm. The way it plays with its structure is, I mean, it it plays with there are pages that are like backwards or upside down there are pages where the words are arranged in a way in in like a specific shape to give you a certain feeling there's also this funny dual narrative structure where on on the one hand you're reading the this description of a series of videotapes and underneath it in these footnotes you have this framing device of this uh, tattoo artist who's absolutely losing his mind while he's reading this account of these this description of these videotapes another example is lincoln in the bardo lincoln in the bardo it's the story of the death of president lincoln's son and the effects it has on the ghostly inhabitants of a local cemetery it's told as a series of quotations from various accounts. Some are historical accounts, some are like personal diaries, primary sources, secondary sources, and also individual quotations by the ghosts in this cemetery. And these depictions, these 
these testimonies contradict each other. They often, they're wildly different from each other. And it, it instead of one solid narrative structure, it's like you've assembled little pieces that don't always fit together of like a hundred different narrators. And I don't know how you'd do a film that way. I mean, that yeah. sounds like a, a complete quilt of different narration that then produces like yeah. a, like an uber narrative. I don't even know what to call that exactly. Yeah. It, it's I'm, I'm sure very so interesting many. the way it's done. Interesting. Let's see. There's the naked lunch whose structure is deliberately confusing. Uh, William S. Burroughs believed that language was a type of mind virus, and in a lot of his work, he tried to sort of tear it apart and destroy it to free himself from it. So he, I believe he wrote The Naked Lunch in a way that's linear, but he chopped it up and rearranged it in a way that was deliberately confounding, because he wanted to stress us out and confuse us and unmoor us. Hmm. Cloud Atlas is another really fantastic example of an interesting structure it consists of six stories that are folded into each other like a russian doll so you start at the beginning in i think the the early 1800s late 1700s with a story about an explorer and you get the first half of that story and then it ends mid-sentence and then suddenly we get a story like a series of diary entries written in the 1930s in vienna and we get the first half of that and then that ends and then we get the first half of another story in, I think, the 1970s, and it's a political thriller. And then the first half of a farce in present day, and then the first half of a cyberpunk future story. And then you get the entirety of this distant future post-apocalyptic story, and you get the whole thing. And then when that ends, you start going back in time. So you get the second half of the cyberpunk story, and then the second half of the present day farce, and then the second half of the 70s political theater thriller and so on and so on and so on until finally you get the second half of the very first story <laughs> and it's a very wonderful structure and it's and it's beautiful and it works and it's great and in the film adaptation they had to change that because an audience would never accept that maybe around the the when you start getting into the third story they'd be like wait what about the other two this is bullshit i'm done i hate this Right. They would never right, because, accept this. <laughs> yeah, I mean, in general, I, I would imagine that uh, the the general audience uh, would probably not respond well to that, <laughs> which which also brought its own challenges and problems to the adaptation because then you have you know yeah. Tom Hanks being sort of orientalized and uh, uh. Halle Berry being a white woman, and it's just like it, that was a problem apart from it but i understood why mainly because if you want to show that these are sort of maybe not exactly reincarnations but definitely like the same people keep showing up you're, you're starting to point at a pattern that exists in the story whereas in a novel you can get away with that because there's you know you're gonna accept you're gonna um i guess presume that a reader is going to come along with you for the ride uh because you're doing things the right way you know you're you're engaging in narrative and, and so on and so forth in in a way Plus that there's a is sort of a meta text to it too like the first half of the story it's the diary entries of this explorer and then in the second one is the diary ex uh entries of a composer and he finds the first half of that manuscript in the library of this guy he's working for okay and oh. and like each next story kind of refers to 
the previous story engaging like then the one woman in the 1970s listens to the composition written by the guy from the 30s and like so on and so forth and it's sort of woven together and oh i found this copy of the manuscript and oh i i read this book and and it works really really well and again how are you gonna do that in a movie mm. yeah I, I don't yeah it I understood why they did it the way they did it in the movie. <laughs> and it's the Wachowskis yeah. who can get away with like still having studios give them money for these things. Yeah, uh, for here give me tons of money for this completely crazy idea. Like that's awesome that they that they can keep doing that especially these days. Yeah, it, it you reminded me of this a series of two books by Catherine Valenti who uh, wrote The Orphan Tales. Uh, mm. they're in or the orphan's tales in the night garden and in the lands of coin and spice and it's essentially like a shazar shazarazad am i saying that right um, i have no idea <laughs> i'm not entirely sure uh, arabian nights let's put it that way yeah structure where each chapter ends introducing the character that's going to be in the next chapter and all of these are sort of interwoven sort of in a in a uh, concentric circles and then mm. in the second book you get all the way back out from the deepest part of the story back out mm. to the original orphan who's telling the story and it's really interesting uh to see someone pull it off yeah i haven't revisited it but i mean she got two books uh <laughs> that are structured that way published so i'm gonna say that uh catherine valente kudos to you for pulling it off yeah she 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 could do it that is a really big undertaking yeah that's pretty cool yeah, it's it's not it's not easy. <laughs> don't be afraid to use that. In other words, don't be afraid to to do that because again, this is a unique strength of the medium, and use that fucking strength if you can. <laughs> oh, yeah, I mean this this is the thing that I keep going back to that these are all fan just great tools. Just don't leave them lying on the in, lying in the dust because you want to just do an audiovisual medium uh, of of like I want the movie in my head to be on the page. It's like you you can use other tools uh you right. do have to think about them though and and which ones you want to take out of the toolbox to really engage with uh writing and the full sort of spectrum of what writing can do you know engage right, the senses right. engage the mind engage memory and thought and, and emotion uh in a way that movies can only sort of imitate yeah yeah so let's turn to one of the biggest things, I think, which is voice. One of the most important and wonderful aspects of a book or a short story is the writer's voice, which is something you can't code into a film. And that's why so many film adaptations of great novels have a narrator talking through the whole thing, because that voice is what readers fell in love with. I mean, even a really good adaptation like American Psycho will do that. It had Patrick Bateman's constant voiceover the entire time because the story doesn't work without that. Yeah, I mean, I also, don't forget The Princess Bride, which has, uh, like yeah. the movie itself, has this great framing to allow that to happen because, you know, you get Fred Savage and, and uh, Peter Falk reading The Princess Bride book and then in certain parts, it's like, hold on, hold on, stop. Is this about kissing? And then you, know, you, right. you jump back out of the story because they're going to have like an offline discussion about. And it, it mimics it. That's the weird thing. Like, I think Gold, Golding, um, because he wrote both the book and the movie, understood that 
you can completely mess with time in a, in a movie about a book because that's how you deal with books. Right. And that's how storytelling is. Yeah, you, you stop momentarily to argue about canon. Uh, you can do that. You can do that in a book. You cannot do that in the movie, at least not in the movie theater, because people are going to shush right. you. Because again, the movie's moving at its own pace. You know, by the time you've, you can't pause it to talk shit about the movie and how this didn't fit in. <laughs> right, right. But developing your voice, like developing your voice as a writer, is such a big part of becoming a, a good writer. And if you don't use that at all, then why are you even writing? I mean, part of the reason why we love certain writers is they have these unique, interesting voices. And part of the reason why we fall in love with a book is this wonderful voice. It, the book itself almost becomes like a character you're talking to that you develop a relationship with. Mm -hmm. And it's an absolute travesty to neglect this. Like, think of some of... Some of I'm thinking of some writers that I love or books that I love. To Kill a Mockingbird had this really beautiful voice. Or Kurt Vonnegut's bleak, absurdist humor where he keeps repeating these so-it-goes phrases over and over again. Or you got Carmic Cormac McCarthy's style. You have Hemingway's masculine prose. And this isn't just like the great highfalutin writers who have this. Even pulp writers or pop writers like Mickey Spillane or... Helen Fielding of Bridget Jones's Diary have this unique voice to their work that makes the readers fall in love with them. And if yep. you're trying to be pure cinema, you end up missing this voice. And it is a tragedy to deny yourself that, to deny your readers that. Yeah, it's, uh, it, it's a weird thing because I, I, I always wonder, like, I don't know if you've ever done this exercise yourself. Have you ever asked yourself what your own voice is? <laughs> I have. It's I'm it's infuriating sure. because yeah it's infuriating because I don't know what my voice is but other people read my stuff and say oh such a great voice I'm like what are they talking about it I'm the same person <laughs> I think the only thing I can come up with as sort of like a, an exercise in in driving yourself a little crazy is to assume that the voice a certain novel or story or whatever you're writing. Uh, has is sort of like the the weird persona you've adopted to write that <laughs> <laughs> as it as if it weren't difficult enough <laughs> right right i mean you're becoming the narrator right not necessarily right. the writer and there's a difference between who you are the person sitting in the chair typing versus who this narrator is right <laughs> and, and and maintaining a distance so that it doesn't sound like if the story does not require it to sound like you talking in everyday life, you need to be aware of that. <laughs> it's, it's, yeah, I don't know. We, we, we sit in rooms and, and write to, listening to voices in our head. What can I say, folks?
I want to take an exemplary passage from Toni Morrison's The Bluest Eye that uses voice and structure and time in this incredibly elegant way. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to read this bit. It was a long time before my sister and I admitted to ourselves that no green was going to spring from our seeds. Once we knew, our guilt was relieved only by fights and mutual accusations about who was to blame. For years I thought my sister was right. It was my fault. I had planted them too far down in the earth. It never occurred to either of us that the earth itself might have been unyielding. So let's look at this passage a little bit. It's this really fucking great passage from The Bluest Eye. Let's look a little bit about the stretch of time. We're going over a passage of years, right from the moment of planting and then sometime years later when, they've, when they're coming to this conclusion and the years they've spent arguing about it before somebody figures out what's going on. So we've got this stretch of years kind of compressed, but we zero in on a couple of moments, the arguments, the initial planting, and we keep returning to this initial moment of planting. Yeah. Well, it's sort of bracketed by, I'm remembering when I first re- when I first perceived the, yeah. that we admitted to ourselves that this is the problem. Yeah. And that's invisible too. It never occurred to us. That's something invisible. You can't visually code that it never occurred to us. You're, you can't visually code something that did not happen. <laughs> well, I mean, and also it's, a, it's an idea. How do you film an idea? <laughs> right. Aside from a character making a really corny eureka gesture. Mm-hmm. Right. Like, and, and this is not even an idea, but a non-idea, an idea they didn't have. Right. Exactly. How the fuck do you visually code that? You can't. So this passage embodies so many of these amazing tools that you only get with the written word that you can't get with an audiovisual medium like film altogether in this really nice, tight little passage that's gorgeous and deep and evocative and just devastating. Like that last line, it never occurred to either of us that the earth itself might have been unyielding. Like, oh my God. And it's like, bam, there's the theme of your novel. There it is right there. Where where does this, is this at the beginning of uh, The Bluest Eye? Yeah, it's near the beginning. Okay. That makes sense. I wasn't sure if this was like the last line (laughs) or the beginning. Uh, Either one would fit. Uh, Yeah, this is around the beginning. And it really sets up the perspective of the novel too, of like, we're tracing back to the beginning where things went wrong for this for this one character. Yeah, I can see that. Yeah, and it's it's great. It's it's sort of like that uh, 100 Years of Solitude quote as well, where it's sort of like in, there's time upon time folded upon itself, uh, just right. sort of right there for you to see. Yeah, uh, yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's it, how do you, yeah, how do you <laughs> show something that some, like an idea that no one had? Uh, you, not in a movie. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the only way you could do this in a movie is here's the voiceover. Yeah, yeah. A, a montage sort of, with a voiceover, just uh, clumsy. It, it, it would be very corny, but you know, uh, to to quote Brian Cox in adaptation, uh, where he's he's uh, portraying McGee, the 
the film, the screenwriter. And he's mm-hmm. like, and God help you if you use voiceover. But, you know, the funny thing about the movie is that the last half, he says, God help you if you use voiceover, but they'll forgive you if you end well. And the <laughs> last bit of the movie is just complete voiceover. And it's a bang up <laughs> ending. And you, and it's so fucking hilariously apt and and uh, accurate that you know I, I'm sitting there just in awe of the fact that I'm aware that the that this is being done to me, but also it works. So let's talk a little bit about why we need to write stories that are happy to just be stories and not desperately trying to be movies, and also how we can do this. Why is it so important to write books that are happy being books and not books that desperately want to be movies? I think it's a it's a question of all of the tools that we have mentioned up until this point. You you want to make sure that you have the option to use them and not pare away any of those tools in the effort of trying to fit into uh, fit a movie into a uh, or I'm sorry a book into a movie shaped hole. Mm. Mainly because movies are are insane like they're very very uh, large risks financially. And that's why you have formulaic plots. You know, you have like that cat, save the cat formula that um, that a lot of movies uh, follow regarding how to portray characters and how a story is structured and so on and so forth. And, uh, you know, they have it down to the minute sometimes what exactly is supposed to happen in a movie uh, regarding its story structure. And books don't have to follow that structure. It's a different medium. Uh, you, you can do whatever you want. Uh, and, I mean, there are risks in writing books, right. sure. I mean, but it's they're a time the f- investment for sure. But, I mean, yeah. worst case scenario is you don't get officially published and maybe you self-publish. Right. But Well, and even then, I think that the, the issue is that because even on the market side of things, uh, a publisher understands that a book is a book and may be willing to accept a book that has a strange structure to it or that has a less than stellar happy ending because you wrote a book. There is a risk from the publisher, of course, but it's not the same risk and they're not under the same pressures. Right. And and like you said, even if you might end up trunking that novel, uh, you might decide to write another one or you might decide to punch it up and just put it online somewhere. Uh, if it's not uh, for everyone's taste, you know, whatever, it doesn't matter. Right. I mean, you just have more freedom and it's a shame not to use it. Yeah. yeah. And I, I've also got a philosophy, which is if I want a movie experience, I will watch a movie. If I'm reading a book, I want it to be a book. If I'm going to invest the time in reading a book, I want something in my hands that is a book and that is happy being a book and that is proud to be a book not something that wishes it was a movie. I'll just watch right. a fucking movie. Right. I mean, everyone's heard the cliche, right? The Well, the book was better. Well, imagine right. that, but for all the books that didn't get made into movies. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. And, and I understand why writers sometimes do that. I mean, we're competing against a lot more visual media now. I mean, in the 1800s, your options for entertainment were like, read a book, vaudeville, or like chase a hoop with a stick. 
<laughs> and like right now we got, you know, we got TV is like way better than it used to be. Visual effects and, and movies are really good and everything's available on streaming. And plus you got video games. So I understand this like, well, if you can't beat them, join them sort of, or we got to beat them at their own game, but we can't beat film at its own game. Because it, the game is being a movie, and a movie is better at being a movie than a book is, because it's a movie, yeah. and a book is not a movie. <laughs> and you're just destined to fail when you're trying to beat film at its own game. Just try and be a good fucking book, and then you'll beat the movie at the game of being a book, because a movie's not a book. Right. Well, not to mention, like, even the action of watching a movie is a much, it's a much more passive thing. You allow the movie to stream into your eyes. <laughs> you know, a book, you actually have to choose it. So there's even more freedom, even in the act of reading. And I'm not trying to make it mystify, like, try to mystify it or anything like that. I'm just saying right. that you have to want to read a book. Uh, you, you have to want to watch a movie to watch it but once you're watching it mm -hmm. you don't have to do anything else like you said you can play on your phone for the rest of it if it's sort of boring and still say that you quote watched a movie a book you can't sort of half-ass it that way you know you just can't uh, you need to really yeah, really want yeah. you, you really want to yeah you really have to want to finish it to, to really engage with it like, I put a movie on and then argued with someone on Twitter for two hours. You can't really do that with a book. Yeah. <laughs> I, and I, I, would, I would say that even audiobooks, uh, to a certain extent, don't fulfill the exact same thing either. And, and I guess I in terms of time, the time is chosen for you by the narrator. I mean, I'm not mm -hmm. knocking audiobooks. Maybe, yeah. maybe, maybe you don't have time to sit with a book in front of your your face and you want to listen to an art an audiobook at the gym or while commuting or something well at the right. gym that we're supposedly that we're not allowed to go to right now but you know what i mean during yeah, I normal mean, times i mean in in the sense that for me the experience let me put it that way because then you i don't want people thinking i'm being ableist uh you know mm -hmm. audiobooks are totally valid as reading is i'm just saying that for right. me i don't get the same experience a lot of the no. time uh, with audiobooks than I do with just reading an actual book. So I, I feel like that is something that's important for you to keep in mind when you're writing that you want to you are you are able if you're if you're using all your tools to write, you are able to engage a reader so that they actually embody the story you're writing and they're they're watching it happen in their head and they're helping you along. Mm. And always, always ask yourself, why does this need to be a book and not a movie script? Why does this need to be a short story and not a little video game? Mm. If you don't have a real answer, you need to rethink your story. Yeah. Because maybe you don't really want to be a writer of fiction. Maybe you'd rather be a screenwriter or maybe you want to be a comic writer. And that's cool. That's fine. But if you're going to write fiction, if you're going to write stories and books, then then do that instead of sort of half-assing that while wishing you were something else because it comes well, through in your work. Yeah, I mean, and and I think that the, the issue here is that I do want to point out that there are a lot of writers that, that sort of write in those different channels uh, that will write fiction and will write for a game or, or perhaps for TV or, or what have you. Understand that each of those channels requires different things from your writing. Uh, books are the ones that I feel 
allow you to use all the tools at your disposal. Right. And I don't feel like game writing or filmmaking are necessarily going to allow you to use all those tools, mainly because of the way that the medium is constructed. Right. Right. Um, And also read more books and stories, particularly those with interesting structure or voice. And really look for literature written before the ubiquity of film and TV. They perceive the world in a very different way, I think, because people weren't completely obsessed with visual media yet. Mm -hmm. And I think it's extremely worthwhile to read some of this old stuff that was written before everybody got used to looking at motion pictures. Because action sequences, just physical stuff is handled really, really differently. And you know that a lot of the time this is being written by people who experienced it, by people who, who lived it, and not by people who watched an actor pretend to do it. <laughs> That's true. That's true. But even even the pacing is different, uh, oh, I yeah. feel. Moby Dick, it's these little vignettes. It's this long, sprawling... I mean, it's a journey, and like a seed, and like any journey, it's really quiet for a lot of parts of it. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, he's, he spends a lot, a lot of time, dare I say it, world building <laughs> before the actual <laughs> adventure happens. But yeah, that, that's exactly what that is. Like he shows the, that weird seaside chapel and the, you know, all these weird little vignettes. And they all come together because it, it sort of gives you a feeling for what this world felt like. Uh, yeah. Which I feel is something that a film cannot really exactly get you to feel yeah because it's it's like again ursula k Le Guin saying you know like a theme is what i spent 200 pages in a book trying to explain (laughs) right and and film can't can't get that yeah okay so let's wrap it up before the gods intervene yet again and try and stop us from from finishing this episode uh (laughs) Thanks for coming on the show. How can our listeners find you or support your work? Well, uh, uh, they can uh, find my website, alignofink.com. Uh, I am a co-host on the Podside Picnic uh, podcast. Uh, that is Patreon slash Podside Picnic, patreon.com slash Podside Picnic, uh, where Pete and I talk at length about our uh, genre educations or miseducations, as the case may be. <laughs> and um yeah that's about it for right now yeah well thank you so much for coming on the show thanks for having me back for the second time ever <laughs> for the definitely first time ever <laughs> yes we have never. not recorded this before nothing happened no. everything is fine <laughs> <laughs> all right and thank you audience for listening that's all for this episode if you like what you heard Head on over to patreon.com slash writegood and sign up. Subscribers get early access to new episodes, bonus content, and an invitation to the Discord, where we watch movies and have group writing sessions. And be sure to listen to us next time. Until then, keep writing good. Kittysneezes.com in color.